in our Old Testament section, we're going into Joshua. Um, over the last couple of months, we've been, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at um, when God comes to us in the darkness. And um, those who've been going to the weekly Bible studies, we've all agreed that um, this is some hard scriptures. Um, darkness is not an easy thing to talk about. Um, and so to continue to talk about darkness, what's interesting is that how much time God spends in the dark. And so if you recall, um, the first um, week of, second week of Lent, we, we looked at, it looked at um, Jacob. And um, Jacob wrestled with God at the nighttime. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then the Israelites um, went into Egypt. And in Egypt, they spent a long time there. A pharaoh became king that didn't, who said, no, we can't have these guys growing and growing and growing. And he made them slaves. And then God frees the Israelites. And we, last week, we looked at when God freed the Israelites. That, that was at nighttime in the dark. They, uh, Moses raised his hand, and God split the Red Sea, and they went through the Red Sea in the dark. And now the Israelites have been spending about 40 years in the wilderness. And before they get ready to go into that promised land that God promised them, we meet them again in the dark. This time, some couple of people, spies, now it's Joshua. Moses is dead, and he, um, Moses has died, and he and points this guy named Joshua to sort of lead them. And Joshua sends two spies into this promised land to check it out before, before um, they cross over into this promised land. And this is where we are today in, in, on, in the and looking at God in the darkness, you can look at your, um, you can write, read along with me if you'd like to on page 194 in the Old Testament section. And our Old Testament reading comes from Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I invite you now to listen to the word of our Lord. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of the prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flask that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the forks. As soon as the, um, the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, she came up to the roof, to them on the roof, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Aramites there beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there is no courage left in any, any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven 
above and on earth below. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. My first year in seminary, the then president of the school, uh, Stephen Hayner, um, was dying of cancer. It was a year-long battle. In one of the last weeks of his life, the school gathered in the seminary to pray. I'd never been part of a service like this before. I found it to be both frightening and uplifting. Uplifting because I was gathered with faithful people. And together we prayed and we sang and we read scripture. It was a beautiful service. But frightening because I was gathered with people who were not hiding. Not from vulnerability or the unknown. They weren't even hiding from death. As we gathered on one side of the street, admitting our mortality, dust we are and dust shall we return. On the other side of the street, our president, our friend, our colleague was breathing his last breaths. Perhaps the most memorable moments during this time were the words one of my professors professed. Looking back, these words changed my life. He was sort of the MC of the service, if you would. He helped the transitions from song to, to prayer to reading. And during these transition times, he stood up and he kept saying the same thing over and over and over again. Dr. Nishioki kept saying, this is what we do. This is what a Christian family does. We join together as a community, not only to celebrate, not only in the good times, but we join together in the dark times. This is what we do, he kept saying. This is who we are and what we do. Have you ever noticed how much time God spends in the dark throughout the Bible. The Bible starts with dark, void without form, and God goes directly into it. God meets Abraham and Sarah in the night and sends Abraham and Isaac off to sacrifice in the dark. Later, God meets Isaac's son, Jacob, not once but twice in the dark. First, Jacob's climbing a ladder. The second time, Jacob wrestles with God. Jacob's son, Joseph, is met by God time and time again throughout his dreams. Then God sends the Israelites out into the dark, splits the Red Sea, and then God meets the Israelites again in the dark when God gives them manna. And all of this dwelling and sending in the dark is just the beginning of the Bible. God is in the dark throughout. And it's prominent in our message this morning. And so often we look at this passage, and our focus is on Rahab's occupation, prostitution. And we say something like, if God can use a prostitute, then surely God can use me. If we're not careful, though, that can sound pretty judgy. We focus on what we define as sin and guilt. When reality... And it's not a popular truth, I know. But the Bible is way more concerned with darkness than it is with sin and guilt. 
Not that sin and guilt are not important because they are. It's just that we can concoct um, some pretty interesting definitions of sin and guilt. We can put sin and guilt in a box. And then we can control the narrative. And then we can point at the box and say, look at them. They're sin. They're sinful. But darkness, we can't control the narrative. And the Bible knows this. And God dwells in it. And that is frightening. And Barbara Brown Taylor has written that the darkness is not dark to God. And this can be terrifying for those who like to see their deities well lit. When we cannot see, when we are not sure where we are going. And all the old landmarks have vanished inside the darkness. Then plenty of us can believe we are lost. When the exact opposite may be true. Based on the the witnesses of those who have gone before, the darkness is where God takes people apart so they can be made anew. It's in the unknown of the darkness when nothing that we thought we knew about God can prepare us to meet the God who is. It is a dark womb where life begins at least those that are willing to lift up the veil. And this is where we find Rahab and the spies, both um, wanting to to lift the veil into a new life, both being called to step into the darkness. The book of Joshua is a transition from from the Israelites, being in the wilderness and moving into the promised land, and Joshua sends these spies out to check on this new land. And the spies go out at nighttime. And we do not know how or why, but they end up at a prostitute's house. The Bible has some funny and very interesting twists and turns. We know very little about this woman. We know her name is Rahab. We know she has a house. We know her occupation, and we know she has a family, and that's it. We do not know how she got into prostitution, whether she was sold there or not. And maybe she was a widow, and it's the only way that she could make money. Maybe her parents needed money. And so this is the occupation they sent her into. And maybe her whole life, she was told there was nothing more that she could be, that she wasn't worth anything else. Whatever or however she got there. Rahab wanted out. She heard about the God that was coming. A God that said, take care of those on the edges, on the fringes, especially the widows, especially the orphaned. She heard about a God that freed the oppressed. A God of new beginnings. A God that said, there's no other kings but me. And so when the king of Jericho comes knocking at her door, she lied. She said, those spies you're looking for, oh, they're long gone. And she sends them away on a wild goose chase, climbs a ladder in her house, and she steps into the dark to meet two spies that are hiding. And we love to hide from the darkness. 
with all of our hiding, we've reduced darkness and light into two categories. Dark is bad, light is good. But what if? <clears throat> what if darkness and light are not so dualistic? What if they work together? What if God uses darkness to show us the light? After all, without darkness, there is no light. I'm not suggesting that God causes darkness. God did not cause a situation in Rahab to become a prostitute. Nor did God cause COVID-19. God didn't cause the war in Ukraine. He didn't cause women to be oppressed in Afghanistan, and God doesn't cause the death of a young child. God doesn't cause the loss of a job or the anxiety that's crossing America. To say that God's darkness and light work together is not to say that God causes the bad things in our life, the darkness, but it's to say that God can use the darkness that this world produces to not only change us, but God uses it to change the world. <clears throat> Her name was Kathleen. She grew up and she, she dreamed that she was going into some exotic place of missionary. She wanted to proclaim the gospel and she share, um, to share the good news of all um, around the entire globe. She was focused on her dream, but life happened and it didn't work out the way that she had hoped. She got married, she had children, they needed extra money, and so she went to nursing school. She ended up as a public health nurse at Asbury Park, New Jersey. She was not in Haiti. She was not in China. She was in Asbury Park, New Jersey. <clears throat> if you know Asbury Park, New Jersey, you know that 1930s and 1940s, it was a fashionable seaside resort with great hotels and shops and a, a boardwalk that rivaled Atlantic City. But then by the time that Kathleen was there to be a public health nurse, Asbury Park looked more like bombed-out Berlin, and with shops being closed, the boardwalk deteriorating, and most of the hotels were closed or flop houses. There was one of the hotels, though, that housed a number of aged people. Most of them were sick. All of them were poor. The management of the hotel would not allow public nurse health, nurses into the hotel because they did not want them to see the squalid conditions to which these people were living. <clears throat> and the corrupt city government of Asbury Park backed them up. But every time that Kathleen went by that hotel and she looked inside, she saw Jesus in the dark, waving her in. She took off her nurse's uniform and she put on ordinary clothes. And like a spy, she went to the hotel incognito and was hired on as a chambermaid. And every day, that woman went from room to room to room, scrubbing toilets, changing linens, uh, taking blood pressure, checking medications, and speaking a word of encouragement. When none of the rest of us would have seen anything but guilt and sin, she saw darkness, a place that the world tried to hide from. And while inside, she simply pointed to the light. On the cover of your bulletin, 
are three priests. Uh, these priests are serving communion on the streets of Ukraine. This was taken two weeks ago. The priest is in the, in the middle. His name is uh, Fyodor Reichenitz. Last week in the Life of the World podcast, he was interviewed, and Fyodor recalled that on the day serving communion, on that day, began with serving communion in a bunker. He served it to the soldiers. The soldiers had requested that he come that morning. It was such an overwhelming experience that three men decided to go into the streets, offer communion to those, anybody who walked right by them. This horrifying, dark place Ukraine found themselves in, hoping to give somebody some type of hope. Fyodor's theology is within the Lord's Supper as everyone is welcome to the table. It's an open invitation for Fyodor. And there's something scandalous about that. Uh, To have an open invitation means that there are people, uh, per our judgment, that seem, well, a little sinful, a little guilty. And we question if they should even be allowed at such a prestigious table. This is true for one of the men that approached Theodore that afternoon. He had no religious background, and he asked the meaning of that bread and that cup. The bread and the cup is a reminder that in a dark night... Jesus was arrested. In that dark night, he was handed over to the religious leaders and then given to the government. And then the state later crucified him. The bread is a body that was broken for you in that dark night. The blood was sealed for you. God knows the darkness of this world. It's also a reminder that God knows that darkness and that God also leads us out of that dark tomb, reminding us that death is not the victor, that love is the victor. Without saying a word, he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, I need some of that. In an interview, Theodore was asked why he does it. Where does he go into the danger each day? And most days he's not serving communion, but most days he's just handing out water and some Oreos and a word of hope. He said, you go because someone needs your presence. Someone needs your smile, your shake, your hug. I have to remind myself daily that we are humans and we're here not to, to make an archive or preserve our humanity. We're actually here to show our humanity. Fred Rogers, the Presbyterian pastor, better known to us as Mr. Rogers, his name pops up whenever there's a natural disaster or a catastrophe within the world. Usually you see it on Facebook or Twitter, a quote by him, or you you hear it at the end of a newscast. I heard it last week. A newscaster was interviewing um, people in Poland as Ukrainians were walking across the border. These Poland um, people were were welcoming in then these refugees. The newscaster ended her segment like this. Like Mr. Rogers taught us, watch for the helpers. The only problem with quoting Rogers to adults is 
that Mr. Rogers' audience were three and five-year-olds. For adults, Fred Rogers, deeply faithful Presbyterian minister, assumed that all adults would be the helpers. He assumed that this is what we all do. That we all just go into the darkness. It's not hard to look around to see the darkness of our world. And on top of that, many of us are facing our own darkness. My advice, don't shy away from it. But go into it. It, the darkness, is that emptying feeling that you feel within your stomach. And that is where God is calling you today. Whether it be your darkness or someone else's darkness, God is inviting us to join God there, not to dwell in there, not forever. But we go into the darkness that God can lead us through the darkness, trusting that God will walk with us along the way. And who knows? The person of the night that God has waiting for you and for me that change our lives forever. Because that is what God does. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.